are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Thursday afternoon, question and answer time, where I come online on YouTube and Facebook Live, as well as out to our TWR360 audience, and we spend a little bit of time talking about questions from the Bible. We usually begin with a lead question, and the lead question for today is, what day is the Sabbath? Let me read to you the question that comes in from Greg. God bless you, Greg. I appreciate your question. Here's the question that comes in from Greg. Good morning. My name is Greg, and I live in Texas. I have to put my questions on paper rather quickly because my short-term memory is very bad. I've learned to accept this diagnosis, but I do realize my time is limited, and I'd like to ask my questions before I lose the ability to do so. Well, God bless you, Greg. Thank you for sending this question. He also says, I follow Pastor Guzik on my phone using YouTube and Spotify for your daily podcasts. He and Enduring Word have truly been a blessing in my life. And again, Greg, so pleased to hear it. Here's Greg's question. My question is, what day do you consider the Sabbath to be? Just today, I saw that the Catholics changed it to Sunday by decree. I don't want to continue my practice observing Sunday as the Sabbath if that is the case. So I ask, what is the actual day for the Sabbath that I should be observing? Thank you again for the amazing work that you're doing. I'm praying for your ministry daily. So again, Greg, thank you so much for your question. And again, just to get back to that, what day is the Sabbath? Um, let, let me answer a few questions. First of all, Greg, it's not true that the Roman Catholics changed the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday by degree, uh, decree, I should say. Instead, let me talk about what day is to answer most directly. And again, Greg and anybody else, you got to listen out here to the whole answer. To answer most directly, the Sabbath is Saturday, the seventh day of the week. The week beginning on Sunday, the first day of the week, continuing to think that it's Saturday, the seventh day of the week, the Sabbath is Saturday. Remember this as we see it in Exodus chapter 20. Now, again, uh, if you give me just a moment here to put this up, Exodus chapter 20, beginning at verses 8, uh, 9, 10, and 11, we read this. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter nor your male servant nor your female servant nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and hallowed it. And again, that's Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. Now, if you'll notice there, there very clearly in verse 8, the Sabbath is described as the seventh day. That's Saturday. For ancient Israel, that was their day of rest. Verse 10 says that they, you shall do no work. And what's remarkable is that this rest was for all of Israel. And I find two really interesting things about that, sort of from a historical perspective. First of all, 
It was remarkable in the ancient world to have a day without work. I remember reading that there was some ancient visitor to Israel, you know, way back in ancient times. And when they visited Israel, they said that there were three amazing things. There was a sea without fish, that would be the Dead Sea. There was a temple without a god, uh, because the temple in Jerusalem had no image in it. So they said there's no god in that temple. Of course, there is the living god, but he doesn't represent himself with an image. A sea without fish, a temple without a god, and a day without work. That, that was thought to be an unusual, a remarkable thing in the ancient world. So that in itself, a decreed day of rest was remarkable. But there's something else that I think is really amazing about the Sabbath law, was that it included everybody, including the son, the servant, the stranger, even the cattle are mentioned in verse 10. So God commanded Israel to make sure that there was sacred time in their life, separated time of rest. Now, as time went on, in their traditions, the Jewish people came to carefully quantify what they thought could and could not be done on the Sabbath day. Again, the idea of keeping it holy. Ancient rabbis taught that on the Sabbath, a man could not carry something in his right hand or his left hand. He couldn't carry it across his chest or on his soldier, but he could carry something with the back of his hand, his foot, his elbow, or in his ear, his hair, or on the hem of his shirt or the shoe or sandal. On the Sabbath, Israelites were forbidden to tie a knot except that a woman could tie a knot in her girdle. So if you had to get a bucket of water up from a well, an Israelite could not tie a rope to the bucket, but a woman could tie her girdle to the bucket and then the girdle to the rope and then pull it up from the well. So you see, they, they had all these very technical laws which really just invite the technical uh, evasions from it all as well. This whole system was something that Jesus often challenged. He challenged the man-made interpretations and impositions upon the Sabbath. When you take a look at the Gospels, it seems that Jesus looked for ways to break the Sabbath traditions. Well, of course, he never broke God's command of the Sabbath. We also see in this passage from uh, Exodus that God established the pattern for the Sabbath at the time of creation when he rested from his works on the seventh day. God gave that as a pattern. It's as if God said this, hey, um, having too much to do isn't an excuse for taking the rest that you need. God says, I created the universe and I had time to rest from my work. So when we remember the Sabbath, we're actually, and you could even say literally, we're remembering the rest. The very word Sabbath is derived from the Hebrew verb to rest or to cease from work. And, and the most important purpose of the Sabbath was to serve as a preview picture of the rest that we have in Jesus Christ. Now again, like everything in the Bible, we understand this with the perspective of the whole Bible, 
not just this one single passage. I mean, if the only thing it said about the Sabbath in all of the scriptures was this passage that I just showed you in Exodus chapter 20, then we would think, well, then we as Christians, we are also obliged to keep the seventh day as a day of rest, just as commanded right here. But when we take a look at the whole of the scriptures and see what the later passages say about the Sabbath, we see that God in Jesus Christ fulfilled the purpose and the plan of the Sabbath for us, and he fulfilled it in us, Jesus Christ. He is our rest. When we remember the finished work of Jesus Christ, we do exactly what Exodus chapter 20 told us to do. We remember the Sabbath. We remember the rest. This is why in the whole of Scripture, it makes clear that under the new covenant, and Greg, I want to remind you that you and I as believers in Jesus Christ We are under the new covenant, not the old covenant. We understand that under the new covenant, no one is under obligation to observe a Sabbath day. But Paul wrote about this in Galatians chapter 4, verse 10. He spoke critically, criticizingly of the Galatians. He said, you observe days and months and seasons and years when they should not have been doing so. We also see that the Sabbath is, as I spoke before, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Um, Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 says, So let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. A very important point. The Sabbath is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This is the point of Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, where it says, There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. This, according to Hebrews, and again it flows right along with what the rest of the New Testament says about the Sabbath, The Sabbath for us is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And because the shadow of the Sabbath is fulfilled in Jesus, we are free to keep any particular day or no particular day as a Sabbath after the custom of ancient Israel. Now, I I think that we dare not ignore the importance of taking a day of rest. God has built us so that we need a day of rest. You know, kind of like a car that needs regular maintenance, we need regular rest, or we won't function well, we won't wear well. Now, some Christians are dogmatic about observing Saturday as the Sabbath, as opposed to Sunday. But because we're free to regard all days as given by God, it makes no difference. And in some ways, Sunday is more appropriate. Again, we are free to worship God in day. Greg, if you or anybody else feels that you should or must worship God on Saturday, praise the Lord. You have complete freedom to do so. But you're not under scriptural obligation to do so. 
And a matter of fact, according to the New Testament, excuse me, the scriptural pattern that we have is worship on Sunday. Let me show you this. This goes all the way back to when Jesus rose from the dead. Let me remind you that the resurrection of Jesus was revealed on Sunday. Mark chapter 16, verse 9 says, Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene. Then Jesus first appeared to his gathered disciples on that very same Sunday. It says here, Then on the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, not Saturday, Sunday, when the doors were shut, the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, peace be with you. Do you see that? Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. He first appeared to his gathered disciples on Sunday as well. He met with them again on the following Sunday. John chapter 20, verse 26 says, And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Now, I know it can seem a little bit confusing to us because it says it's eight days, but they would count eight days counting the present day. So counting the present day and talking about eight days, it would be on the following Sunday. We also see that in the book of Acts, Christians gathered together on Sunday. Acts chapter 20, verse 7 says, Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. Do you see that? When did the Christians gather to break bread together? on the first day of the week, not on Saturday, not on the Sabbath. They regarded Sunday as their new Sabbath. And we also see this in the letters of the New Testament. First Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2 says, on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. Again, when did this happen? on the first day of the week. So, Greg, let me tell you, the idea that the Roman Catholics changed the Sabbath to Sunday by decree, who knows how many hundreds of years after the time of the New Testament, it's just not true. In the New Testament, we see Christians using Sunday, the first day of the week, as their day to gather. Now, there is no specific command in the scriptures. You must gather together on Sunday, the first day of the week. Therefore, we really leave it up as a matter of Christian conscience. We have freedom in Christ. For some people, uh, they go to church on some weekday. That is their day of worship and rest before the Lord. Other Christians, they would say it's Sunday. That's the prominent thing in our culture. For a few Christians, it would be on Saturday. We have freedom in Christ, but we do see a clear pattern biblically that early Christians gathered together on Sunday, and we shouldn't forget that. We shouldn't uh, neglect that. So again, um, what day is the Sabbath? Well, I come back to just this simple question. The Sabbath 
is the seventh day. But the Sabbath is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and he is our rest. So, we are free to recognize any day of the week as our day of rest. We have the liberty to choose Saturday or Sunday or whatever because we are free in Jesus and every day is holy unto him. We also want to point out that the earliest Christians gathered together on Sunday and set the first day of the week aside as a day of worship. And again, we have no specific command for this in the scriptures, but we do see it as a pattern in the Gospels, in the book of Acts, and then finally in the New Testament letters. So, um, Greg, again, thank you for your question. So glad that you wrote it into you. Thank you for praying for the work of Enduring Word. We feel that God has given us a significant work to do in distributing Bible resources, my Bible commentary, that we hope will be helpful to people, and distributing those resources free of cost uh, to a broad audience. So again, thank you for your prayers towards that end, Greg. All right, let me go on to some questions that have come in now on the live chat. I hope you excuse me, I got a little um, a sore throat, so I'm drinking some tea while we talk here. Marlene asks, I believe on Instagram, I'm wondering, I got baptized as a baby, but I got saved just at ye last year at 41. Do I need to be baptized again? I'd love to, but I don't know when and where yet. Marlene, yes, you should be baptized as an adult, as someone who has made a uh, credible profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, I know that are Roman Catholic friends. I know that many of our uh, Reformed uh, brethren, I know that uh, Methodists or Anglican believe in baby baptism, in christening, whatever they want to call it, um, even among the Eastern Orthodox. Brothers and sisters, I just have to say, I, I think that um, uh, infant baptism, pedo-baptism, is an unbiblical practice. And different Christian traditions justify it for different reasons, but I've dug into it deeply, and I don't think that they are valid reasons. Therefore, I would recommend to anyone who was baptized as a baby, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, that you should seek to be baptized, uh, that you should be baptized as a believer. Because Marlene um, as meaningful as your baptism was uh, for your parents, uh, for the, your family when it happened, you were not baptized as a believer. You had not put your faith in Jesus Christ. So really, um, I would recommend to you, yes, be baptized as a believer. Um, let me go next to the question from Junebug. If a believer dies and goes to heaven before the resurrection, will their spirit only be in heaven until we're all resurrected together? Junebug, let me just say, um, maybe. We don't have enough uh, evidence, biblically, to give a firm answer to that question. 
We do know that at least our spirit to goes to be with the Lord because we have that great promise that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Whether we are present with the Lord with some kind of temporary body, whether we are present with the Lord just as spirits awaiting our resurrection body, we don't know for sure. The scriptures don't tell us. I'll give you another possible solution to this idea here, Junebug, is that it may very well be that we, um, that the problem really resides in how time connects with eternity. We understand that there's a difference between time and eternity, that, that heaven doesn't keep time the same way we do. And for us, that day of resurrection is still off in the future. Uh, we, we understand that. But maybe when we die and go to the eternal realm, maybe the day of resurrection is right now. <laughs> maybe everything just fast forwards to that day. I don't know. No, nobody really knows. So, Junebug, I can't give you a, a firm answer to that question because the Bible just doesn't tell us. But I would just simply say that we know we do go to be with the Lord. And whether or not the resurrection waits for later or it happens immediately, at least as a person experiences go to heaven, we just can't tell for sure. Um, from YouTube, uh, Tim asks a question. What was the purpose of Samson having physical strength and is there any type of archaeological evidence of Samson as a historical person? Tim, great question. Um, God's purpose in giving Samson physical strength was so that he would smite Philistines, <laughs> so that he would win deliverance militarily for Israel against the Philistines. Uh, Samson was not a spiritual leader, not at all. He was somebody that God endowed with unique strength to be sort of like a one-man army. We have other judges that God raised up in the days of the judges, deliverers, if you will. Um, but they led groups of other people. Samson was unique. God gave him this unique physical strength that he had uh, because he was a one-man army. So uh, never really anybody like Samson before him or after him. Um, so we have that regard. God simply raised up Samson to help the people of Israel, the tribes of Israel exist and not be conquered and overwhelmed by the Philistines so that they could, according to God's promise, exist as a coherent people until the time of Jesus the Messiah. I mean, let's never forget that. If the people of Israel perished before Jesus the Messiah came, there would be a real sense in which God's plan was thwarted. God's plan was set aside. And so God went through extraordinary and sometimes miraculous measures to keep the people of Israel alive, existing as a people. Now, as for whether or not there's any type of archaeological evidence for Samson as a historical person, no, uh, I do not believe so. Uh, I believe that the earliest archaeological evidence for specific persons in the Bible goes back to the time of David. 
I don't think we have archaeological evidence of specific persons before the time of David, which again isn't surprising if you think of how little would survive over all those thousands of years. It's not surprising at all. So Tim, I hope that answers that question for you there. Another question from N coming on YouTube. When we believers have the Holy Spirit living in us, then why do we all interpret the Bible differently? Well, N, um, good question. But we, we definitely all have the Holy Spirit within us. But we don't have all of the Holy Spirit that there is to have, so to speak. And more importantly, the Holy Spirit doesn't have all of us. L- let me tell you this, N. In heaven, we're all going to interpret the Bible the same. In heaven, our eyes will be completely opened. In heaven, there's going to be no more question to this effect. And so we just kind of say that uh, will belong to the realm of heaven. But in the here and now, um, we're not perfect. We do the best we can. And I, as a Bible interpreter, a Bible commentary, I do the best I can. But um, I know that I'm still learning. I know that I'm still growing. And I know that there's certain places where I just no doubt get it wrong. Now, not consciously. If I was aware of any place in my biblical understanding where I was wrong, I would change it. So really, it's that simple. Um, we are not yet perfected. We are not yet perfected in our body, our soul, our spirit. Um, we definitely have the Holy Spirit, but he does not have, so to speak, all of us. We are not all completely or perfectly yielded, and we still have to deal with the world, the flesh, and the devil. But again, and in heaven, we're all going to interpret the Bible just the same, perfectly, correctly. Uh, here's a question that comes in from our TWR360 audience, from Anne. She asks, do we have to receive the Holy Spirit a second time after receiving Jesus as our Savior? to be filled with him? And if so, how can we receive it? Um, And you're touching on a question that I think is really good, really valid. And I'll just make it clear that when anybody puts their faith in Jesus Christ, when they surrender their life to Jesus Christ, they have the Holy Spirit. If anyone does not have the Spirit of God, he doesn't belong to him. That's what the scriptures say. So, um, when a person is born again, they have the Holy Spirit. But I I don't think that that giving, that bestowal, that filling of the Holy Spirit is what you might call a one-and-done effect. I think that we have continual opportunity to be filled with the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, to, uh, to, uh, as it says in Ephesians chapter 5, be constantly being filled with the Spirit. So I don't believe that God intended the giving, the bestowal, the filling of the Holy Spirit to be a one-and-done event. I think in God's heart, in God's mind, it was to be something that would be often and continual. Now, sometimes in Christian tradition, this has been spoken of as a second blessing, maybe 
a significant secondary experience that somebody might have with the Holy Spirit. And, and I believe that somebody met, but because I believe in a third and fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh, and you know, you could just take it on infinitely almost. Um, I believe in an ongoing experience with the Holy Spirit. Of course, I believe in a second experience with the Holy Spirit. So none of that's to deny what we receive from the Holy Spirit when we're born again, but just rather to flow with it. Um, hope that makes sense to you there, Anne. Going on, next question comes from David. David asked this question from YouTube. Thank you for the question. Did the Magi visit Jesus in Bethlehem before or after his presentation in the temple? Because Luke chapter 2, verse 39 says that the family returned to Nazareth. Where does Matthew fit into Luke's chronology? Um, David, I, I would put it to you this way. The presentation of Jesus at the temple happened only eight days after the birth of Jesus. That was the day appointed in the law of Moses for that to happen. And Jesus, being someone who perfectly fulfilled the law of Moses, he obviously did it on the correct day. So there's that. Now, uh, I believe then that the visit of the Magi would have been after uh, Jesus was presented in the temple as described in the Gospel of Luke. Well, then you ask the valid question, why then does it say in Luke chapter 2, verse 39, that the family returned to Nazareth? Well, it's just because <clears throat> for whatever reason, uh, we could speculate on the reasons all day, but for whatever reason, Luke decided to skip over the flight of the family to Egypt. And certainly they did return to Nazareth eventually. Luke just didn't include And Sometimes we can sort of twist ourselves in knots when we're comparing the Gospels and ask why one Gospel didn't include something that the other Gospel does. But this is just the characteristic of the four Gospels. So God gave us a perfectly inspired fourfold account of the life of Jesus. And um, for reasons, again, we can speculate about, but perhaps we don't really know for sure, uh, Gospels will include some things and not include others. And Luke just obviously passes over the flight to Egypt that's described in the Gospel of Matthew. I mean, you could also ask, why doesn't Luke mention the visit of the Magi? Why, why didn't he mention that? Again, the answer is, we just don't know. Uh, I mean, ultimately, it was because of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But on a human level, we, we can't really say why. It could have been any number of reasons. Hope that's helpful for you there, David. Another question from YouTube comes from Daniel. Daniel asks this question. Is it biblical to pray to the Holy Spirit, or should we primarily pray to the Father? Well, Daniel, um, I'm interested in the exact wording that you used for your question. Let me go back to that exact wording. You said, is it biblical to pray to the Holy Spirit, or should we primarily pray to the Father? Well, Daniel, yes, I would say primarily we should pray to the Father. This is the primary pattern of prayer that's given to us in the Scriptures. We pray to God the Father uh, by the mediation of the Son. He's the one who gives us access, gives us entree unto God the Father. 
through the inspiration and the empowering of God the Holy Spirit. That's the, um, the primary pattern for prayer. Nevertheless, let's not forget, the Holy Spirit is God. It is not dishonoring to the Godhead to pray to the Holy Spirit. Yes, it's not the primary pattern of prayer. And if somebody was in the habit of only praying to the Holy Spirit and not praying to God the Father, we would regard that as strange. Just something's off there. Um, so, yes, we see, and we see very plainly, uh, that the primary pattern for prayer is to pray to God the Father through the mediation of God the Son, in the power and the empowering of God the Holy Spirit. But again, since the Holy Spirit truly is God, we are not forbidden from praying to the Holy Spirit or worshiping the Holy Spirit. It's really just a matter of uh, proportion and what's primary and what's secondary. Hope that helps you there, Daniel. That's a good question. Rocco, among our Facebook audience, asks a question. He says, I'm part of the student ministry at my church, and we use the Heidelberg Catechism to teach confirmation classes. And what are your thoughts about the catechism and confirmation in general? Rocco, um, look, the Heidelberg Catechism is good. Now, obviously, it's reformed in its doctrine, obviously. And while I am not reformed in my doctrine, um, I don't consider myself anti-reformed. I mean, there's certainly places where I disagree and maybe even strongly disagree with Reformed theology. But um, look, these are my brothers. These are my sisters in Christ. And, um, uh, you know, I, it's just, I, I, I'm not on a crusade against Reformed theology. I, I, I don't have it. I think it's good that you guys are going over the Heidelberg Catechism. It's a good way to learn theology. Now, the format of a catechism, memorizing questions and then uh, hopefully biblical responses to those questions. Again, I might have some disagreement at certain points with the Heidelberg Catechism, but leave that aside. Memorizing questions and the answer to those questions, that's because of the catechism format. Look, I, I think we can be pragmatic about these things. If it works well, then great. Um, this isn't a biblically commanded form of teaching, of training, um, but it's certainly not commanded against. And so I think we can be fairly pragmatic when it comes to these things. Does it work? Is it an effective way to teach Christians the basics of biblical doctrine and theology? So um, catechisms are forms of Christian education that have been used for centuries. I mean, going back to, to early church times in some way or another um, to teach the people of God. So um, they have a rich legacy whether or not they're helpful and useful in our modern day, I, I leave it up to individuals to understand that. So uh, the whole idea of confirmation, oh, confirmation is basically based on the premise of infant baptism. Because churches that baptize babies tend to be the only ones, that, there's probably a few exceptions, but churches that teach infant baptism are the same ones that have confirmation. 
because they realize we baptize this person, but they may or may not be a true believer at all, but they're baptized. What do you do with that? Well, you, you seek to bring them into the faith, to educate them, to confirm them in the faith through the process of confirmation. And a good confirmation class can be great. It can be a great path to discipleship and maybe take some of those young people who were baptized as babies and bringing them to a real living faith in Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord for that. But these are forms. These are systems. And we can just evaluate them and say, do they work well uh, for the purposes of what we're doing or not? So really, that's, um, that's, that's really how I would describe it there, Rocco. Um, Carrie asks this question. Don't know if that's from Facebook or YouTube, but Carrie, thank you for your question. Matthew chapter 27, 52. Did the old saints get a glorified body? Okay, uh, Carrie, you're referring to one of the strangest verses in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 27, verse 52, where it says, And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went to the holy city and appeared to many. <laughs> Carrie, again, the scriptures do not tell us that these people um, either died again or didn't die again. And really, that's how you would measure it. One of the great differences about a resurrection body compared to this body that you and I presently have, is that a resurrection body will never die. So, did somebody uh, receive a body in which they never died again? We're just not told. We're just given these mysterious, even cryptic verses from Matthew chapter 27 telling us that when Jesus died on the cross, amazing things happened sort of there was a, a, a tearing of the continuum between time and space, so much so that even some people were, at the very least, resuscitated. Were they resurrected with a resurrection body? We don't really know, but they were resuscitated. Maybe they were resuscitated and died again a few days later. Maybe they were resurrected and then just gathered to the Lord in heaven. We don't exactly know. We can't really say. You know, Carrie, there's always a difficult place for us when we think about the scriptures. We just need to be careful that we don't speak where the scriptures are silent. Now, I'm not saying it's not wrong for us to think about it or ask the questions or speculate a bit. But even when we think about it and ask questions and speculate, it's just good to note the scriptures don't specifically tell us so we can't give a, an absolute answer. We can just do the best we can with it. Again, Carrie, I guess the answer is we just don't exactly know. It could have been either way. Chris asks this question. Does the rest spoken of in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 and 11, refer to something more than physical rest? Can it also refer to the believer's rest from his or her former works of the flesh in the old nature? Chris, absolutely. Matter of fact, that's the whole point of that passage in um, Hebrews chapter 4. Let me bring that up again. I'll show you guys that verse. Um, let me see if I can get it over here quickly. Um, 
Here we go. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. It says, There therefore remains, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Now, again, the whole point here is speaking of works in the sense of what we would do to justify ourselves, what we would do to earn our way before God. Matter of fact, Chris, I would say that the primary sense here is a spiritual rest. That's really what it's talking about. The rest that we have from our unceasing efforts to try to find approval and acceptance with God, Jesus Christ has provided that in who he is and what he did for us, especially what he did at the cross and in his resurrection. It's just that simple. So Chris, not only does Hebrews chapter 4 verses 9 through 11 include the idea of spiritual rest, I would say that it primarily deals with the idea of spiritual rest. Um, so yes, you're, you're, you're touching on that point exactly. And that's why the physical rest of the Sabbath, uh, while it was and continues to be good for just for the human body, for the human soul, to have one day of rest in seven, um, most pointedly, it pointed forward to the real rest, that Sabbath rest we would have in the finished work of Jesus Christ for us. And that is one way why Christians are not under obligation to keep the Sabbath after the same pattern as the Jewish people under the Old Covenant. Excuse me once again. Another question from YouTube comes from Angela. Angela says, uh, can you please explain how dangerous the book The Secret is? How does a Christian deal with someone who has read this? Know this? I feel it's a spiritual battle. Angela, I, I, I apologize. I really just don't know anything about this book that you're talking about. I'm, I'm going to be straightforward with you all. Um, I, I, you know, there's a lot of books that get published in the world and in the Christian world. And I'm sure some of them are great. I just don't read that many of them. I'm not the kind of guy that goes out and finds whatever the hottest or most popular talked about books are and read them. Sometimes I do, but it's just not my practice. Look, most of the reading I do, I'm looking around at the books on my shelves right now. It's of commentators, mostly old Bible commentators. Those are the guys I read the most of. So, uh, Angela, I have no wherewithal to answer your question because I'm really not familiar with this book at all. So, I'm sorry. I, I, I hope you can find an answer to that question. Rose asks, and this is from YouTube, what is the mystery Paul talks about in Ephesians? Well, Rose, I think it's a couple of things. There's a few different aspects to the mystery that Paul mentions in Ephesians. And I can speak about this fairly freely because I just spoke about it last night when I taught at uh, the church I attend, Calvary Chapel of Santa Barbara. Rose, the mystery Paul speaks about in Ephesians involves at least a couple things. Number one, the fact that God would bring together in one new body Jew and Gentile. In other words, the thought, now the Old Testament doesn't specifically say this, but the thought that would be easy to get from the Old Testament, that when salvation came to the Gentiles, it would come to them 
by them all becoming Jews, as if that was the solution. They would all become Jews, and that's how salvation would come to the Gentiles. What we find in the New Covenant, a mystery, something that wasn't known until God revealed it in apostolic times, was that God's will was not to just fold all the Gentiles into Judaism, but rather to make a new people, a people that were not fundamentally Jewish, not fundamentally Gentile, they were Christians. That's one aspect of the mystery. Another aspect of the mystery is that God has an eternal purpose. Again, this is in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. God has an eternal purpose to teach wisdom to angelic beings in and through the church. That's really remarkable, isn't it? This is what God is, he is displaying his manifold wisdom, his many faceted wisdom to angelic beings. In Ephesians chapter three, they're titled principalities and powers, but that's what, that's just sort of New Testament terminology for angelic beings. Uh, it's really wonderful to see that this is part of God's great purpose. There may be other aspects to the mystery that are just not coming to my mind right now, but Rose, at least it's those two aspects. Uh, Another question from David on YouTube. Uh, who is behind you on the shelf? Well, let me take a look. Aha. That would be John Knox. John Knox, that great Scottish reformer, an amazing man of uh, boldness and, um, and just fiery faith in Jesus Christ. A man who led a nation, the nation of Scotland, to a wonderful time of renewal and revival in the Lord. So that's John Knox. Thank you for that question. Uh, Norman on YouTube asks this question. Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on a mountain and transfigured before them without a carving or photo. How did they know that Elijah and Moses appeared also? Huh. Norman, what a great question. It's a very good question. I mean, look, um, are, are we to suppose that Moses was wearing a T-shirt that said Moses? Elijah was wearing a T-shirt that said Elijah? They didn't have name tags? They didn't have photos? How do they know that they're looking at Moses and Elijah? And Norman, I, I think that the best answer to this simply is they just knew because um, I think in our resurrection bodies, in our eternal bodies that we have, and I don't know if I could strictly say that Moses and Elijah had resurrection bodies because Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection. That hadn't happened. Maybe they had some kind of bodily image or form. But in the eternal, we're just going to know each other. I think this speaks of the fact that in heaven, when we're gathered together with God's people throughout all generations, we're just going to know who we are. You're never going to forget a name in heaven. And won't that make it heaven right there? You're going to know. I think this is just part of some of the perfection of heaven. Who I am will just kind of radiate out of me and people will know who I am. And who you are will just radiate out of you and we will know perfectly. I think this is just reflective of God's people in the world beyond. We know. Another example of this is in the story Jesus told about the rich man 
and Lazarus, when they're gathered together in Hades, which isn't heaven, but it is the world beyond, they seem to know who Abraham is. Again, I just think this is something that's known. Now, this reminds me of a story that maybe I shouldn't tell, but I'll tell it anyway. A story that I once heard about Charles Spurgeon. You know, uh, one day a lady came up to Charles Spurgeon and she said, um, Spurgeon, are, are we going to know each other in heaven? And Spurgeon said this. He said, my dear lady, you're not going to be more stupid in heaven than you are on earth. I think that's a pretty good answer. No, I, I think this is just something that belongs to the world beyond the earth beyond. So I think that's the best way to answer that question, Norman. Uh Marlene from YouTube asked another question. Can I just pray to God? I would say, dear God, is that wrong? Marlene, no, that's not wrong. That's not wrong. You don't need to specifically address uh, any particular person of the Godhead. Not at all. You can just simply pray. So nothing wrong with that at all. You can just simply pray to God. Uh, that's absolutely fine. Nothing wrong with that at all. Let me just hold on to see if there's a few more questions. Um, I think that maybe that's about it for the day. People, thank you so much for tuning in. So pleased that you could join me. Uh, please plan on being with me next Thursday as we get together again. I certainly enjoy these times. Oh, uh, Anne says... Thank you for answering my question. Is it biblical to think that every believer should have a private heavenly language to speak directly to God? And let me just say, I believe in the validity of the gift of tongues for today. And I believe that it's a gift that God gives to many, but certainly not to all. And the purpose of the gift of tongues is for somebody to communicate with God, either praise or prayer, intercession, on a level that transcends their intellect. Honestly, there's some people who just don't really sense any need for that. They don't desire it. They, they feel fine with their own ability. And for those people, I'm, in that sense, they don't need the gift of tongues. But I often say to people, if someone does feel that they have that need, then they should definitely, definitely seek God to give them this gift. So, and that's how I would say, um, I, I don't think it's biblical. Very specifically in 1 Corinthians, Paul asks the rhetorical question. A rhetorical question is a question where the anticipated answer is no. He says, do all speak in tongues? And he says, no. And he's talking about believers. So again, um, no, it's not reasonable to think that God intends the gift of tongues to be for each and every believer. Okay. That is really it for today. Again, thank you, everyone, for joining us. Forgive that little hiccup, which is long forgotten at the very beginning where we didn't have audio. And so pleased that you could join us. Please, would you continue to pray for the work we're doing as Enduring Word, especially the work that we're doing in trying to distribute these Bible resources to as broad of an audience worldwide as we can. God's using it, and we're grateful for it. God bless you. Thank you for joining us. Have a wonderful day. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.